Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for smarter, safer, more profitable investing, where we aim to bring you the very best ideas and the very best minds in the business, completely filter-free. I am your host, Charles Sizemore, and today we are talking all about the digital dollar. What is it? Are there any risks? Are there any benefits? Are there any alternatives to it? We're going to dig into all of the details here. And to help me do that, I have brought on our resident cryptocurrency expert, Mr. Ian King. Ian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Charles. Good to see you. Yeah. So I guess let's start with the basics. Um, I'll be honest, it's still a little bit nebulous in my head. (laughs) What is a digital dollar? I mean, we know that most dollars already are just blips in a computer screen. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is something fundamentally different, correct? Right. So to break it down, there are many ways of thinking about digital dollar. I think the two main ones are a central bank digital currency, which would be issued by a government, a central bank. And there's also a stable coin, which is basically a cryptocurrency that is... um, uh, tied to or pegged to some type of dollar in reserve, or perhaps it's you know decentralized where it's not tied to anything in reserve. It's just imagine that it's worth a dollar. So there are two ways to think about a digital dollar. There's the government way, the centralized one, and there's the decentralized one, the cryptocurrency. Now, the decentralized one has been with us for years. That's, that's not new. It's this new government uh, option that is in the news today, a little bit controversial. And in fact, it's we don't even have it yet. It doesn't even officially exist. And yet it's already being outlawed. Uh, I did see a headline. I'm actually going to read this verbatim off of the, uh, the, the press release. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made headlines by preemptively outlawing a digital dollar. Per the release, the legislation would protect Florida consumers and businesses from the reckless adoption of a centralized digital dollar, which will stifle innovation and promote government-sanctioned surveillance. Florida will not side with economic central planners. So I, I do think that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's a degree of political grandstanding. This is what sure. politicians do, of course. But I know that he's also tapping into some sort of legitimate fears. Um, so let, let's, uh, but before we get to that, though, let's go more into the logistics of what exactly this government digital dollar is. Mm-hmm. We, 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 most of our viewers probably have some nebulous idea of what a stable coin is. It's essentially a kind of like a, a Bitcoin type thing that is pegged to a dollar or is mm-hmm. designed to follow a dollar. But what exactly is the government version? And well, let's just start with that. So this is an idea that's been around for decades. Uh, in fact, way back in 2011, I met with a small startup out in Oakland, California, very like nondescript building. They didn't even have a sign on their door. They didn't want anybody to know what they were doing. And it was founded by a gentleman who ran uh, a consulting business, was the head of a large consulting business for for China at the time. And he told me the problem that they found in China was that there were um, workers who had come from the rural areas, were working in the cities, were making money. And the problem was, how do they send the money back to their families in the rural areas? And, you know, China has hundreds of millions of workers in the same predicament. And what the workers would do was they would take their cash and they would wrap it up and essentially put it on trucks and ship it back because the people in their home areas and the rural areas didn't have banks. So they had, this is how they had to get their money back. And to do that, they would have to pay a significant fee 
to the people who were transferring their cash back. And also so, trust them because there's nothing a, really to stop them from just trucking away the cash that, to who knows where. Exactly. Um, so he came up with this idea of creating a digital dollar to solve the time and space problem for people that don't have a functioning banking system. And most of the world in the, in the developing world is underbanked, right? So this is a big problem, not just in China, but throughout most of Africa well, as well. I see it every day in Peru, by the way. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, the, the last stats I saw, something like 60, 70% of the Peruvian population doesn't have a bank account. And even in the right. U.S., there's some portion that don't because they have bad credit or or, or whatnot, and and nobody wants to open an account for them. So, I mean, I so theoretically, you. you know, it sounds like a great idea on paper, right? I mean, this is like the the ability to bank the unbanked is a great idea, uh, and we could both agree with that. And also to solve the space time problem with money, because you know, cash is very difficult to move around, and if you have a lot of it, it's hard to store. You really need to have a bank, and if you don't have a bank, it's risky too. You put your life at risk. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and so th this company is now piloting this program with over 100 countries, uh, central banks around the world. Um, it, it's especially apparent in areas where there's high seniority. So the, the idea in the US is easy for us to move cash from the central bank where it's made into banks because we have a modern roads and railway system. But in areas of the world like the Philippines and Japan, where they're very separate islands, there's a high cost of moving money from one point to another. And this would help. In this you know, case, you're talking about physical cash. You're talking about physical moving actual cash. bills. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, and, you know, now the Fed has been working uh, with technologists to create basically a central bank digital currency here in the U.S. I don't think it's going to be rolled out uh, in the next year or so. I think it's going to take a couple of years. But there's other reasons why the Fed would want to have a digital dollar, uh, primarily because you can't break the zero lower bound with cash. Uh, and I'll just give you an example. The Fed has a job where they can lower rates to zero. Once they get to zero, there's this conundrum that they can't do anything else, right? This is the only tool in their toolkit. So they came up with this idea of quantitative easing, which was, I believe, first put into practice by Japan. Uh, 30 years ago. And what they do is they basically buy longer term assets from banks and replace those assets with reserves. Now, that's not very precise, right? Because what it does is cause a lot of distortions in markets. And as you'll see, we know nothing about that from the last few years, do we? <laughs> no, I mean, like in 2010, <laughs> the Fed did QE, right? And the idea was to lower the unemployment rate and uh, to raise inflation, they could not raise inflation. The unemployment rate stayed high for, for many years while the price of assets shot up. Right. So when you do QE, it rewards people who are actually asset holders. If you're a homeowner, you know, or if you have a lot of stocks, especially growth stocks, which tend to benefit from, from QE and lower rates. But what the Fed wants to do is basically with a digital dollar, they could break the zero lower bound, which means they can impose a negative interest rate on savers. Because in times of economic crisis, the Fed wants to get people to either start investing more or spending more. And if you have money in a bank account that has a negative interest rate on it, you're incentivized to do something else with that money. You're going to go spend it somewhere or, you know, you're going to use it to consume or you're going to invest. You, you may something. take it out and bury it in your backyard, not metaphorically, literally. Well, if, if, if you have been, if interest rates are negative, <laughs> if you have cash, that's what you can do. Right. But in a cashless society, you have no other options. And I think the digital dollar, you know, one of the main impetus for this is basically to stop people from hoarding cash 
And, you know, they would be basically savers would be penalized, uh, for lack of a better word, for keeping cash and not consuming or investing it, which would create more economic growth, theoretically, at least you ever know how these things are going to work. This is how basically they would model it. And that's why the digital dollar is so important, because you can finally break the zero lower bound. You can impose negative interest rates on savers because they wouldn't be able to take cash out of the bank, hide it in their mattress, bury it in their backyard. And so I think that's, you know, one of the main reasons why the Fed would want to have a digital dollar. Now, there are other nefarious reasons that people worry about, such as if you're using digital dollars and, you know, the government imposes a rule that if you drive a pickup truck, you know, your gas is going to be more expensive. So there are things you can do on the micro level. You know, let's yeah, say this you're is what they call the uh, what's what's the word uh, libertarian paternalism, where Libertari not yeah. tell so, you. so <laughs> there's a great book called Nudge where they talk about it. And, you know, Bloomberg put similar things in practice when he was mayor of New York. I'm a huge Bloomberg fan, by the way. But, you know, there are some things that people didn't agree with where, you know, he imposed a tax on on different types of uh trans fats and and also sugar. So if you went to go buy a big gulp, the taxes were a lot higher in New York than they were in other states, right? So, you know, there are things that the government wants to do on more of a micro level. I think of it more like, you know, precision medicine is like focused on the individual. This would be like precision monetary policy where it's like they can kind of influence your choices to get their ends or their goals that they're trying to achieve. And I think that um, as we've seen throughout history and something you and I have discussed, every time that there is a banking panic or some type of crisis, it becomes a grab or more control for centralized government. And, you know, you can just go back throughout history. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was in response to the bank panic of 1907. The Banking Act of 1933, which is also Glass-Steagall, was in response to the Great Depression. Even by the, the way, that's what created the modern banking system where investment mm -hmm. banking was separate from commercial and sure. And, and FDIC insurance, which we all know is like... <laughs> There really is no limit anymore, right? I mean, it used to be two hundred fifty thousand no, dollars, but if your bank goes under, you go, right? Right, and you know, <laughs> and even in more recent times, Dodd Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of two thousand ten, it gave the Fed, you know, more authority to regulate and supervise financial institutions. Even though, as we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank, that authority and regulation only went so far, and you know, they, the Silicon Valley Bank was basically forced to buy safe assets, and the safe assets blew up. So it's like, you know. They should just have kept the cash, right, and 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 not invested sure. it in something else. Um, so so I think that this is another opportunity. This this crisis that we see in the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you you have the bank term funding program, which basically the Fed says if you lost any money, if you're a bank and you lost money on a bond that you invested in, give it to us and we'll pay you par value for it. We'll wipe away your losses. Yeah, it might be uh, worth eighty cents on the dollar at current market prices, but they'll give you a hundred cents on the dollar. Like right? that that was the that was the facility. Exactly. And listen, I believe that there should be some regulation in banking. The problem is when you go overboard, you create an anti-fragile system. So or, or, or it, 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 think about it this way, like if you're walking around with a neck brace on, your neck is never going to get stronger. It's the same way. If you can't have an efficient market that doesn't always have guardrails, you know, if you're a kid and you want to learn how to bowl and they put those bumpers in the in the lanes so you can never bowl a gutter ball, like you'll never learn how to bowl. And effectively, we're moving closer and closer to not only just having like the bumpers in the rails, so you can't roll it, but the Fed's like rolling the ball for the banks now. You know, it's like the, the, the <laughs> banks are pushing it up the lane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
So, you know, and, and, and throughout history, when there's been this illusion of safety, this illusion of security, and we put all this power into a centralized government, it has not, it never works out well. It never works out. There's always some type of revolt or revolution or something like that. And, and you know, that's my biggest fear uh, is that, you know, the Fed takes too much control of the market. And then we stop believing the Fed is omnipotent and all powerful one day and everything comes crashing down. So well, but already we've seen, you know, the Fed has lost a lot of credibility um, over just the last three years. It's generally believed, generally understood that they really overdid it on COVID era stimulus. They were far, far too late <clears throat> to scale it back. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and we're dealing with the fallout today in, in, in terms of higher inflation and, and distortions to the market. So the Fed, you know, the halo is already off. I mean, Charles, where have you been? I mean, <laughs> since, you know, since I started working on Wall Street, I mean, the 98 uh, emerging markets crisis, Greenspan uh, was way too aggressive in cutting rates. It led to the dot-com bubble, which he may have said was a good or bad thing, you know? You want to talk about frauds. <laughs> Alan Greenspan may be the biggest con artist. I forget Bernie Madoff. Forget any of the. I, I forget Charles Ponzi. Yeah, Alan Greenspan may actually be the biggest, the biggest uh, con artist in history. Like that guy had the entire world convinced. How long was he Fed chair? Like twenty years, fourteen years. <clears throat> he was he was uh, Fed yes, chair for days. Yeah, yeah, and and he had this this aura of just I am the wizard. I. I, I pull the strings and everything just goes just just exactly the way I want it. People almost worshipped him, almost like some sort of secular deity. And then <laughs> the passing of time, we realized no, he really wasn't all that smart. He just had one solution for every problem, which was to flood the market with liquidity, and that uh, ended up causing more problems than it solved. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like he used words that the layperson couldn't understand. Right. He was very good. You, at, you and at, I have been in the financial sector for our entire careers. And I would say that even you and I would would probably be stumped by a few things he, he said. And we would have to read it a few times and kind of wait, wait, what? What does that mean? Yeah, you, I mean, we, to... we, we think of the Fed as nuclear engineers, but in reality, they're just a bunch of degenerate traders. You know, like <laughs> they sound smart and they have PhDs, but we all know from the finance world, it, it, just because you're a PhD doesn't mean that you are a good trader or better than the markets, right? So the only game that they have is to be bigger than everybody else. They have to be the biggest thing. Whenever there's a crisis, it's like, you know, uh, Draghi said, whatever it takes, right? They're, they're this omnipotent power that's bigger than everybody else that can affect the change that they want in the markets. And, you know, I think that, that it shifted towards the political spectrum uh, under Bernanke, because what happened in 2010, when the Tea Party won the midterm elections, there was a fear in the Fed that there would not be any more fiscal stimulus from, from Congress. And so literally the day after uh, that, Bernanke went and instituted you know, QE without, there was no banking crisis at the time. He just did QE because he wanted to get the unemployment rate down. And that was really like when the Fed kind of stepped outside of its bounds, whereas they weren't just protecting us from financial crisis anymore. They were trying to get more involved into changing the, the you know, basically the trajectory of the economy at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I want to talk more about um, uh, a, a central bank, like stable coins, like what, what, what are the other options? You know, the Fed now uh, 
Well, let's talk about Fed now because that that's that's coming. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's supposed to launch over the summer, is it not? It's coming in July, and you know, many people might say, like, thank <laughs> God we're finally fixing this antiquated system we have, where you know, in the United States, Charles, if, if you want to send a wire to somebody, it takes two to three days to settle. If you want to and send overnight expensive. wire, they charge and you it's like expensive. fifty bucks. Yeah, it's expensive, yeah. right? If you have to pay your mortgage on time, you better make sure that check gets there early. If somebody pays you by check, then you have to go to the bank or you know deposit on your phone. It takes a couple of days to clear. So we have this really antiquated system uh, underlying the banks and the Fed now system is trying to improve that by allowing for instantaneous settlement. Now, the other thing that's happening is they're doing what's known as government to consumer and consumer to government payments. This is where like all the criticism of the Fed now program comes. So and, and so and so by the way, let's let's clarify what that means. So a, mm -hmm. a consumer to government payment is, for example, when you pay your taxes. Right. A right. government to consumer payment could be social security. It could mm -hmm. be if you are on some sort of government assistance, or as we saw in, in the pandemic, if you're actually getting uh you know, like a, a check from the government or something for uh stimulus. Right. And and they had a huge problem with that, right? So when the PPP loans came out, it was like, okay, we'll cut everybody checks. Um uh, we'll cut business owners checks. And then they also did something like 600 or $1,200 checks to everyone. But, you know, the issue is like, then people have to go to the bank and cash it. And during COVID, a lot of banks weren't even open, right? So like, how do you get this money in people's hands? Yeah, you also still have the original problem of some people don't have banks or, you know, some people mm -hmm. may live in rural areas where, you know, getting to the bank may not be convenient, et cetera. Right, which is why the Fed was using Cash App at the time. Like they were saying, just cash go sign app. up on Cash App and we'll send you your 600 bucks, you know, and then you have the cash did, did they use Venmo it. too? I think they use Venmo, right? I think they use Cash App and Venmo. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely sure of Cash App. I'm not sure of Venmo, but yeah, it's pretty funny. You know, they they sent them the $600 and put a little icon there of like pizza or something like that, you know, for what's it for. <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, so this is all what's happening with the Fed, with the Fed now wire. But the other system, and I think the reason why the Fed is really rushing this out is because there's concerns that, you know, some type of blockchain-based finance is going to surpass what we have in the banking system. Um, and I'll give you an example of a, a, a problem that blockchain can solve. I don't know if you remember back during like the meme stock days when GameStop went to like $400. Well, hold that thought one second, just, just okay. to kind of uh, re review for our viewers here. Uh, the blockchain is, of course, the decentralized ledger that mm -hmm. uh, is used to to underpin Bitcoin and other digital currencies. It's um, it's a ledger in which everybody can see all the entries. Right. And it's a way to keep track of who owns what without the banking system. And because you have a way of keeping track of who owns what, you can have for settlement times that are much faster. You know, Bitcoin is the first example of this, where the settlement time is about 10 minutes. It's very slow. Ethereum is speeding up its settlement times. There are other layer one protocols that have settlement times of like almost instantaneous like Solana with very low fees. Um, and so what the Fed is worried about is some type of other ecosystem that is just much more efficient in this digital age than what they have been offering to people. And a big problem that arose from this was um, during the GameStop days when GameStop went to like $400, um, the, the the Robinhood, which is the app where everybody was trading these meme stops on, stocks on, basically like told people like you know if you have GameStop and you sold it for a profit, you have you can't trade anymore. You have to stop trading. And the reason why is because Robinhood was not getting the settlement for those sale transactions fast enough. 
because it's T plus two and T plus three in some cases. And so if you had instantaneous settlement, then somebody who let's say their GameStop shares and now at $100,000 in their account or whatever, uh, would have that money. The, the Robinhood, the broker just didn't have the money fast enough. And that's something that, you know, you don't have an issue with in the crypto ecosystem because everything settles instantaneous. And I believe, you know, what the Fed is looking at is the rise of these centralized stable coins where effectively with a stable coin, you have something that represents a dollar that you can use and it's much more portable uh, and useful and, and use cases in the crypto ecosystem than you have in, in, in essentially, you know, what the banks are offering you right now. Um, and there was a problem when the bank interest rates were really low, people were buying stable coins and putting them on a bunch of different exchanges where they're getting seven and eight percent interest rates, right? So you had like a flood of money that was leaving our fiat banking system and going into stable coins for those higher rates. And I think that is like a real risk for the Fed that they need to worry about where there could be competition for dollars from stable coins. Uh, in well, time beyond that, also, rates. they worry about a parallel banking system existing that they can't regulate. And then, you know, if there is a crisis 100%. in that in that parallel banking system, they're completely powerless to do anything about it. Like they couldn't ride to the rescue like they can in the, uh, you know, the, the mainstream financial system. Right. And and I I. I think that what's happening in like the regional banks, I don't think that this has been totally contagious yet. And the reason for that is there was a moment uh, when Silicon Valley Bank was going under where the dollar that you had in Silicon Valley Bank was not equal to a dollar in another bank. Okay. Because you didn't know if you were going to get the full value of your deposit back if you had more than $250,000 in the bank. Very similar to what happened in the European debt crisis back in 2011, where Greek depositors had to take haircuts. Okay, so if you had a euro in a Greek bank, it wasn't worth as much of a euro in a German bank. And the Fed can't have this problem, which is why they did the, the bank term funding program and made everyone whole and are socializing losses. But if we see any more stress, like let's say we have a year where the assets that these regional bank own, and they own a lot of like government and mortgage bonds that are supposed to be safe. But let's say inflation reaccelerates at some point this year, and those bonds lose value. I think the the public, the depositors are going to get ahead of this, worried what the bank owns by moving their money into the larger too big to fail banks. And so the, the main issue the economy is going to have is that you're going to have a lot less credit creation if you have Bank, a, a limited number of banks. You know, if you only have five banks in the U.S., all these regional banks that do, you know, lots of farm loans, especially like in the Midwest, startup loans in Silicon Valley, uh, that type of credit creation is going to start crumbling, and we could be looking at you know a sharper economic reversal than we've seen in the past. And so we're in this new yeah. digital age where people can just move money from one bank to another on an app. Like it's not like you have to go to the bank and get your cash out anymore. You know, there's there, there's not many restrictions. And, and Ian, the thing, one thing that people don't don't realize is, so okay, we've only had you know a handful of, of actual bank failures at this point, mm -hmm. but you don't have to have your bank fail for them to have to go into bunker mode. So if you know you're running a bank and I'm running a bank, and my bank fails, you're going to be extremely cautious going forward. You're going to be hoarding your cash. You're not going to be very aggressive in making loans because you saw what happened to me. So you're, you're going to sit on your hands for a while. 
And you multiply that across the entire banking sector. Right. And yeah, it means fewer farm loans, fewer small business loans, you know, fewer startup loans. It, it means a lot of that kind of mom and pop Main Street ecosystem mm-hmm. is going to be starved of capital. And Small Business America is the biggest employer. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's the biggest cre- uh, source of job growth, et, et cetera. That's uh, if we've been worrying about a recession, <laughs> this could be what pushes us. Ooh, I just knocked my mic off my desk. We'll just pretend that never happened. Uh-huh. Um, it is my my lovely road mic here. You didn't miss you didn't miss a beat though. I didn't, man. I, that's 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 experience. You know the, the cool. <laughs> no, it sounded experience. fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, if uh, if we are worried about recession, and, and this has been sort of on the radar for the last couple months with the yield curve being inverted and whatnot, what we're seeing now, we don't have to see just domino effect bank failures. Just mm-hmm. the scaling back that we're already seeing could be enough to push us into recession. Right. And remember, in a fractional reserve banking system, confidence is everything. Okay. And if depositors get a whiff, of that their regional bank is slowing down loan growth. They're worried about making more risk. A depositor might be worried that the bank might be in trouble. Everyone is on eggshells right now. You know, every, yeah. everything is very fragile. And it not, it's not going to take much. You know, we've seen in the past with these uh, banking crisis, you know, you sort of have the canary in the coal mine, right? Like, and, and by the way, this isn't hypothetical. I had accounts at First Republic Bank, and uh, you've seen them in the news for the last several weeks. I had to move my money around. I didn't. I don't blame I you. Didn't risk it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, theoretically, you should be safe with the bank term funding program, but who knows, right? Why take the risk? I'm it's not, not risking like it. First Republic Bank is not paying you like ten percent on your money there. You can get the same rate at Citibank or Bank of America or another bank that has a more diversified stream of business, you know, that are not like reliant on their hold to maturity assets in order to make money. So I I think this is going to be the problem in the banking system we're going to face. Anyway, so, you know, where are we headed with this? Like people are worried that there's going to be a central bank digital currency. They're worried the government is going to take more control of the money monetary system because this is what they've done in the past. And we've seen there have been other assets that have done really well when the government takes control of the money. A great example of that is what did gold do, you know, after the Glass-Steagall Act, right, in the 1930s? What did gold do after the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform? It went up. Now you have other assets outside of gold that are actually even a better hedge on the monetary system. And Bitcoin is one of them. Bitcoin, where- find example, Bitcoin was remarkably stable during all of the, 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 the mini crisis last month. Mm-hmm. While virtually all risk assets fell, Bitcoin was shockingly stable. I say shockingly because Bitcoin is not necessarily known right. for being a <laughs> stable asset. You think stable, yeah. But it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And even more so, so, you know, Bitcoin is backed by uh, basically electricity. It's backed by energy, you know, because in order for you to create Bitcoin, you have to have energy. It's also backed by people's belief that it will outperform in times of crisis, similar to gold, right? Gold has very little use cases compared to how much gold there is in the world. I mean, you can use it as jewelry, but it doesn't have an industrial use case. My, My belief is that if there's going to be a uh, decentralized reserve currency, it is most likely going to be Ethereum. The reasons for that is that it is backed by computational power because you can actually use it and redeem it to run some type of smart contract, right? We live in the information age where everything digital is taking over. This is the world's first decentralized digital currency 
which can be sent to anyone in the world as easy as sending an email. And it can be redeemed in and used for something in the same way that let's say you had uh, some type of money that you put in your car, right? Imagine if oil was portable or electricity was portable. That's essentially what Ethereum is. It's a commodity that can also be used as a currency. And I think it, it, in the digital age, you know, when AI like really wakes up and starts making payment machine and machine payments, and everything like that, they're not going to use fiat currency, Charles. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. They're going to use some type of decentralized cryptocurrency uh, that is algorithmic, you know, that can be put on a blockchain and managed in a decentralized state. Um, and, and you know, and and I think like and, if and anything not be is tinkered with, just you know, let it let it be. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, for decades, people have worried about is the dollar going to lose its dollar hegemony? Are we going to lose that? And I think if there's anything that is going to disrupt it, it's not going to be the Chinese yuan, which, you know, you got to deal with that government over there if you own yuan. And it's probably not going to be the Indian rupee because they're still way far behind us. And it's not going to be some basket of currencies, definitely not going to be the euro. It would be some type of decentralized state uh, currency like Ethereum which anyone in the world can use and is doesn't need, you know, uh, a permission from their government to use it to power a smart contract. So that that would be my bet on where I think 10 years from now, if there was a global reserve currency, it most likely would be Ethereum. Ethereum or something that looks a lot like it. Something looks like it. I think it's 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 going to be hard for another cryptocurrency to take over Ethereum just because of the amount of developers you have already embedded in this ecosystem because the the growth of it what's important is who's building new financial and uh uh, uh primitives on top of it who's building you know new applications new cent decentralized applications on top of the blockchain and ethereum has the largest number of developers they have the largest number of users it's the they, most they essentially are the ecosystem now Exactly, exactly. And and on top of it too, you know, Vitalik Buterin, who's the creator of Ethereum, he created it when he was 19 years old, the guy, you know, like you think about historic geniuses in the past, like, you know, Mozart and other musicians from like the rock era. These guys were like 19 when they came up with these like brilliant ideas. This is like the guy and, you know, he he's not... Um, the guy, he's given most of his Ethereum away to the Ethereum Foundation. He's not living some glamorous life like in the Bahamas and like a hundred million dollar penthouse. He's like literally like still sleeps on like friends' couches and like it's just committed to the idea. That's the type of like leader you want in a decentralized cryptocurrency. You don't want somebody sitting on the top. Bitcoin's another example of this. Satoshi Nakamoto is worth about $28 billion dollars but he has not spent one Bitcoin, right? The guy created Bitcoin and then completely disappeared. No one even knows who he is, Nobody or if knows, it's even yeah. a person, or if it's a group of people. I mean, people worry that it's the person, NSA. Alive. <laughs> yeah, no one knows. I mean, it might have been Hal Finney, who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago. Uh, he was one of the, the early, and it could be a guy. You know, it, it would make well. sense if it were someone who had passed away, because that would explain why they've never spent any of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so because of this, uh, anonymous founder, right? Satoshi Nakamoto, he's almost deified, right? He's very godlike. And, and the Bitcoin ecosystem has become like a religion where, you know, you have prophets like Michael Saylor, 
uh, you know, and other people who are, are really into Bitcoin and, and anyone who owns Bitcoin becomes an evangelist. So it really is the world's first digital religion because if I own Bitcoin, it's important for me to tell other people to go buy it too, because that helps my own financial position, right? There's been no other religion in history where it's like there is an incentive for you to spread the good word of the digital currency. An incentive in, in, in this earthly realm anyway. <laughs> you have a monetary incentive. No, I mean, it's, it, I mean, you may knock on it like, oh, you know, this is just like some type of like Ponzi scheme, this monetary Ponzi scheme. But at the end of the day, this, and I was critical of Bitcoin in the beginning as well, because I didn't think it wouldn't gain enough traction. Yeah. I, I have I have a decent bit of Bitcoin and Ethereum in an offline wallet that uh, I, I never plan to sell. So you don't need to convert me. Right. I'm, I'm, so already, part, reached, I'm already part of this cult. You don't well, have to convert we've reached me this, We've reached Well, you're not really like a true cultist because you'd be going to all the conferences and singing and everything like that. But you know, we've reached escape velocity on this, right? This is like the new thing. But it's only been around for like 13 years, like what, what's the price of Bitcoin to be 50, hundred years from now? I, I believe it's going to be exponentially higher. I think, I think Ethereum at some point will pass Bitcoin and be even a bigger cryptocurrency. Um, but, you know, if you worry about what's happening this month, next month, that's not the way to play it. You know, like you said, have a, have a amount that you're comfortable holding uh, and, you know, just buckle up because it's going to be a, a wild ride, I believe for the next couple of decades. Well, Ian, we're about out of time, but this has been insightful as always. Uh, you have put perspective into this digital dollar, what it means, where we're going with it. Where can uh, where, where can viewers find out more about you? Sure. Uh, Strategic Fortunes, that's our, our flagship uh, newsletter. And in fact, the, the last month, I'll just give you a hint, I did write about you know, the digital dollar and, and Bitcoin, what it means for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, I believe, is the answer to this digital dollar. Check out our newsletter. Um, and if you want to learn more and we can put a link below. Awesome. All righty. Thank you, sir. And we'll, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me, Charles. Good talking to you.